let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into this all-important book, the book of Revelation. And we do so by just jumping right back into where we left off yesterday. Now, I had Debbie Rosales with me yesterday, and we really didn't get too far into chapter 8. So what I want to do is go back into chapter 8 and read verses 2 to 5. Again, this is chapter 8, verses 2 to 5. So if you have your Bibles out there, and if you want to flip your Bibles to the last book, the book of Revelation, and turn to chapter 8, verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, loud noises, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay, so again, picking up where we left off yesterday evening, what can we say about verse 5 there? Well, the angel throwing the burning censer down onto the earth is an image of destruction. This is very similar to Ezekiel's vision of a man clothed in linen who takes heavenly coals out among the city as a sign of judgment. If you were to read Ezekiel chapter 10 verses 2 to 7, this is what we read. Therefore, when the censer is cast down to earth, it comes down as fire with lightning and thunder. Now, most people know that fire coming down from heaven is often used in the Bible as what? But a symbol of God's judgment. We read this certainly in Job. A famous example of this is in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were, of course, destroyed by fire raining down from heaven. What's important for us to see here is that Jerusalem is now about to be judged similarly. Huh? In fact, it's later called Sodom in uh, chapter 11, verse 8. Now, another interesting aspect of this image is that the cities destroyed by Israel were required to be burned with the fire from the altar used to light the coals of incense. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 16. This altar fire originally came down from where? But heaven itself. So in Revelation chapter 8, God's heavenly fire is now used to destroy Jerusalem. Some commentators have noticed that the last time the prayers of the saints were mentioned was in reference to the souls under the altar. Remember what we talked about a few programs ago? They are crying out for vengeance. The prayers of the saints may then specifically be understood as prayers for judgment. Hence, these prayers are mixed with fire and thrown down to the earth, sending the justice for which they prayed. So that's certainly a possible interpretation. Now, we just spoke of the fire coming down from heaven and how it evokes the memory of a wicked city of antiquity, Sodom. This connection is made explicit in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, where Jerusalem is literally called Sodom. 
Jerusalem will therefore be judged in a similar way. But Sodom isn't the only ancient city to which Revelation compares Jerusalem. The seven trumpets imply that Jerusalem is also like two other cities. First, Egypt. Thus, the trumpets bring about several plagues just like the ones Egypt experienced. The plagues recounted in Revelation chapters 8 to 9 bear an uncanny resemblance to those described in Exodus chapters 7 to 10. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Moreover, the seven trumpets that are blown in Revelation chapters 8 to 9, leading to the defeat of the city, remind us also of the fall of another ancient metropolis, Jericho, right? Consider in Revelation chapter 8 verse 1, there's silence in heaven. Didn't we not talk about that yesterday evening? There's silence in heaven. Just as Joshua commanded to be silent outside the walls of Jericho in chapter 6, verse 10. In Revelation chapters 8 to 11, we read on a number of different occasions, seven trumpets being blown. And of course, in Joshua chapter 6, verse 13, we have the famous verse of them blowing seven trumpets. We read in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, God's people crying out in a loud voice. In a similar way, we read of God's people crying out in a loud voice in chapter 6, verse 16 of Joshua. Brothers and sisters, what we are made to see here is that Jerusalem has become like Jericho, which persecuted God's people and attempted to keep them out of the promised land. As Michael Barber reminds us, standing in the way of God's plan is not wise. You know, sometimes in the effort to bear witness to truth, we have the tendency to get in the way of truth. The best way out of that, if you think you might be in that space of getting in the way of truth, is be humble, right? Because the virtue of humility never wastes time protecting the false self. No, it is always open to doing the will of God. So I know it might be implicit here, but something we ought to pay close attention to. Okay, how about these trumpets? Well, these horns also point to the end of the world. If you were to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 16, what do we read? That the Lord will come on the last day with the archangel's call and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So as we have seen, the destruction of Jerusalem back in 70 AD points forward to the day of Christ's coming at the end of time. Remember what we talked about from the outset. In chapters 2 and 3, we have the present moment, and in chapters 4 and following, we have the moment that is to be anticipated. And of course, we anticipate this in the Mass. And speaking of the Mass, are not the seven trumpets also a liturgical symbol? If you were to go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 24, and then Temple Liturgy, what do we read of but seven trumpets being blown? So, the trumpets blown by the angels can also be understood as part of the heavenly liturgy. Once again, we have this reinforcement coming through on the Mass. In so many ways, we can say that the Mass is like the golden thread that weaves each and every page of the book of Revelation together. And since the Mass is a share in that liturgy, the heavenly liturgy, we also see the judgment of the trumpets as an image of the church's anticipation of Christ's coming in the liturgy, where we stand to be judged each and every Sunday. What do we say 
and the penitential rite of Mass, do we not go before God and proclaim ourselves as sinners, and only then do we receive God's mercy? What does 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 to 29 have to say about this? Does not the Eucharist judge us? And if we are not right with God, it is spiritual death. So very important. Now, as noted earlier, the plagues in Revelation recall the plagues of Exodus. Now, what is important for us to see here is that the ten plagues were often summarized in lists that recounted them as only seven plagues. This is the case, for example, in Psalm chapter 105, verses 27 to 36. So John's summary here of the ten plagues in a series of seven trumpets is not without biblical precedent, a fine point that uh, Michael Barber makes, because otherwise a comparison would be lost, right? So the first five trumpets bear striking resemblance to passages found in Exodus chapters 7 to 10. Consider with me at least a few of these. The trumpets of Revelation chapter 8 verse 7 bring hail and fire, burn up a third of the earth, trees and all green grass. Well, what do we read in Exodus chapter 9 verses 22 to 24? But hail and fire, burning up every plant and tree. How about chapter 8 verse 8? A third of the sea became a blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. Exodus chapter 7 verses 20 to 21. All the water that was in the Nile turned the blood and the fish in the Nile died. How about Revelation chapter 8 verses 10 to 11? Verses we haven't quite read yet, but certainly verses we ought to bring in to make our point. They read, a third of the waters became wormwood and many men died of the water because it was made bitter. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 21, we read, the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. Revelation chapter 8, verse 12, a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of the light was darkened. A third of the day was kept from shining and likewise the night. Exodus chapter 10, verses 22 to 23 there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did any rise from his place for three days. And how about Revelation chapter 9, verse 2? From the smoke came locusts on the earth. And Exodus chapter 10, verse 14. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever shall be seen again. Why make these comparisons? Well, first and foremost, we are always to appreciate the continuity between the old and the new, and ultimately what is revealed in that continuity. In this case, just as the Egyptians hardened their hearts against the Lord and doubted his mighty power, so also Jerusalem has hardened its heart by rejecting Christ. Now it will face similar judgment. So again, the practical reflection here is don't harden your heart. Don't allow your heart to be callous, desensitized, lest our spirit and our soul go dormant and we slip into a spirit of complacency, that spirit which we begin to lose sense of how God reveals himself. Huh? So how do we do this? Well, what did we talk about yesterday and the importance of just not silence but prayer? 
If there's anything to be gained from these first five verses, it is the importance of prayer and how heartfelt prayer out of that disposition of interior silence goes a long, long way. It is a powerful incentive for those praying to know that our prayers, whether they be corporate or individual, rise like sweet incense before the Lord. Huh? Is that not Psalm chapter 141, verse 2? And how he is present to us when we make decisions that shape the course of our lives and ultimately towards the good. And again, as noted yesterday, how each and every one of our prayers offered to God has exponential redemptive value. And we kind of wrapped up with this point yesterday, and I do want to stay with this point a little longer, and that is how our prayer can actually change history. Consider what the word history means. We often say his story, you know, it's God's story, and, and it's easy to remember because you break down the word history and it's his story, right? Okay, I like that. That's good. It's a way to remember it. But it is a word in the Latin, historia, that literally means to weave a pattern. To weave a pattern. What word did we just talk about? Did I not just mention continuity? When our lives reflect a life of prayer, what you will quickly discover is this seamless continuity between what we do and how we pray. And when you do that, everything will begin to change for you. Now, not by the world's standards. Don't get me wrong. Don't think that everything is going to go your way, because sometimes that is not the will of God. What do I mean? Well, there is a tendency to think that prosperity equals blessing. But in point of fact, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes prosperity can lead a soul in a downward spiral, because with prosperity comes money, and with money comes greed, and with greed comes power and more power, and ultimately this is what leads us away from God. What I'm talking about in relationship to the continuity that exists between a life of prayer and a life lived in the world is when people begin to see Christ living within us, is when others are impacted because of the way in which you are an instrument of peace in God's love. And in this way, we begin to make a difference soul by soul. Is this not the great message of St. Teresa of Calcutta? Soul by soul, we begin to make a difference. Huh? Think about all of the great saints that made a huge impact. I just mentioned St. Teresa of Calcutta. Let us go to her, St. Mother Teresa. When you read her story, she talks about the people who had a huge impact upon her life, to the least of which, of course, was her mother, who showed her, by way of example, what it means to love the poorest of the poor, how growing up she used to always have an extra spot at the table for the homeless. And young Agnes would inquire, Mother Teresa's name before she changed it, right? Who is this extra plate for? And her mother would tell her, for Jesus who comes to us in the homeless. So a seed was planted there, huh? Conversely, consider such figures as Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, maybe Italy's Mussolini. All of these men were negatively impacted. Imagine if as young men, these three tyrannical leaders were impacted in a positive way and how that would have changed the course of history. You see, you never know. This is why it is so important to A, be present to who God is calling us to be present to. And the best way we can do this is by first praying, 
because in that grace, we will acquire the strength necessary to be present to those who are around us. We won't be so consumed in all the things we need to do. So a lot to be said as it relates to prayer. Um, in the light of these verses, when you talk about the offering up of incense with the saints and the angels and so on and so forth, I mean, we could spend all evening talking about the beautiful fulfillments we have from the old and new in relationship to these prophets and, and the book of Revelation, but it is always good to once again apply this to our everyday life and get an appreciation for the things we are made to be present to. Okay, Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 to 7. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, which fell on the earth. And a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. Mm, rich, rich, rich. Now, if the judgments of the seven trumpets refer to the destruction of Jerusalem, one might wonder whether or not it looked anything like what John described. Well, as I've already mentioned, the first century uh, Jewish historian Josephus, we do have an eyewitness. His accounts of the historical events that led up to the destruction of the city bear a striking resemblance to what John saw in the apocalypse. Of course, we must understand that John is not trying to give us a blow-by-blow -blow account in exact chronological detail of the Jewish war that led up to 70 AD. He wants us to see the spiritual truths behind the historical events. Certainly, this is so much of what sacred scripture is about. For example, the judgments are described here in terms of the destruction of Jericho. Nonetheless, there are striking similarities between the imagery of the apocalypse and Josephus' account. So the description of the first trumpet corresponds to the many different natural disasters and social upheavals that occurred during the Jewish war, the Jewish war that led up again to the destruction of the city. Thus, the first trumpet, as the commentators speak to and Michael Barber speaks to, brings about the destruction of the land, the trees, and the grass. This may refer to the utter destruction of vegetation that was caused by the Romans. This is what Josephus explores. Truly, the very view itself of the country was a melancholy thing. For those places which were before adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become a desolate country in every way, and its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert, but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change. Nor, if anyone that had known the place before had come on a sudden to it now, would he have known it again. But though he were standing at the city itself, yet would he have inquired for it notwithstanding. Mm. As I've noted before, my friends, to read the first century Jewish historian Josephus is a fascinating thing as a whole, yes, but more specifically when you begin to correlate uh, the book of Revelation with what he was an eyewitness to. Okay, how about the second trumpet? Verses 8 to 9. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now again, the image of the mountain being cast into the sea 
is another image of the judgment of Jerusalem, huh? The mountain is a reference to Jerusalem, which was built up on a mountain range. The sea is frequently used in the Old Testament to represent the nations. In Daniel 7, the Gentile nations are symbolized by the four beasts which arise out of the what? Sea. Another example of this can be found in Psalm chapter 65, verse 7, where the roaring of the seas is paralleled with the tumult of the peoples. Thus, the image of the mountain thrown into the sea indicates that the nations will swallow up the city, if you will. Note especially the similarity of this image with that used in Jeremiah 51, where God foretells the fall of Babylon. Jeremiah 51, verse 25 and 42 reads, And I will make you a burnt-out mountain. The sea has come up over Babylon. She has been engulfed with its tumultuous waters. In fact, if you look at it closely, Jeremiah 51 appears to be the background in which John places the seven trumpets. For just as the second trumpet has a reference to the burning mountain Jeremiah 51, there's also a connection with the fifth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 describes a plague of locusts that appear like horses. As Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 27 reads, horses like bristling locusts. In addition, the judgment in Jeremiah 51 is linked with the blowing of a trumpet. So John describes the fall of Jerusalem, the new Babylon, in terms of Jeremiah's vision of the fall of the first. Like the first Babylon, Jerusalem has turned against God's people. It is important to note here that Jesus himself also used this image. As he and the apostles were walking towards Jerusalem, what did he tell them? Well, go to Matthew chapter 21, verse 21. What do you read? Even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will be done. So what we're doing here, my friends, is not only interpreting the book of Revelation with the commentaries, but we're doing so with Jesus Christ himself, breaking open Christ's own words. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 39, 40 and following, you search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. Right there, he's certainly speaking to the way in which all of the Old Testament figures prefigured or were prototypes of the one figure of Christ. In this case, we read on the road to Emmaus that he was showing them how he was a fulfillment to the law of Moses, that essentially he was the new Moses who's come to bring them into the new promised land. Right? So what we're doing right now is interpreting Scripture as Jesus Christ himself interpreted Scripture. And over the course of the last 2,000 years, this is what the great Christian teachers have been doing. Now, the second trumpet foretells a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the light living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Once again, Josephus writes about something similar that occurred during the destruction of the temple. Josephus explains how the Romans set fire to the city, causing Jerusalem to appear as one blazing mountain. He explains, this is Josephus, listen to his words. Because this hill was high and the works at the temple were very great, one would have thought that the whole city had been on fire. For one would have thought that the hill itself 
on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it, that the blood was larger in quantity than the fire. Wow. Josephus also tells us about the Jewish rebels who tried unsuccessfully to fight against the Romans on the local lake. The Romans jumping on their ships and running through them, their ships being destroyed. And for those who tried to swim away, well, they were killed by darts and arrows. Josephus explains, one might then see the lake all bloody and full of dead bodies. The shores were full of shipwrecks and of dead bodies all swelled. And as the dead bodies were inflamed by the sun and putrefied, they corrupted the air. Once again, you have John using some powerful imagery to explain real concrete historical events. But like I said earlier, my friends, God wants us to see the spiritual realities that take place in historical events. Here, I am once again reminded of the wisdom of St. John Paul II in his words when he said that history itself is not a series of random chronological events, but an event of freedom. Huh? An event of freedom. That history itself does not spring forth from non-event. No, but realities. My dear friends, each and every hour, each and every day, we make one decision after another, decisions that impact other people. And we need to start taking stock that the decision I make in this moment is going to have an impact either for the negative or for the positive. Are you going to choose vice or virtue? There is a fork in the middle of the road and what direction are you going to take? The right or the wrong? This is what shapes history. And prayer instructs and guides those right decisions because it is conversation with God. Okay, and with that, let us close with a word of prayer. Huh? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift and opportunity to spend time with your word, which gives life. Your word that 2,000 years later is still breathing and living and showing us the better way. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.